Well, I have had the privilege of uh, experiencing countless sunrises in the city of God in Jerusalem. Now, the reason that sunrises in Jerusalem are so spectacular, I think, is because everything in Jerusalem is constructed of the same material. Everything. The uh, streets, the sidewalks, the walls of buildings, the old city walls, everything is constructed of white limestone. And so when you see the sunrise over the Mount of Olives and the beams of the sun begin to reflect and gleam off of all of that white limestone, I just have to tell you, it truly is breathtaking. It is absolutely breathtaking. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, it occurred to me that for the mornings that I've enjoyed that sunrise, throughout the ages, people have experienced this beauty of the sun rising over the city of God. Even the day when the sun rose, the morning that Jesus was going to be crucified. On that day, the day 2,000 years ago when Christ would die, the sun rose that morning just like it had risen uh, every other morning, just as beautifully, just as gloriously as it did every other morning. And for every person who was there in the city that day, or at least almost every person, it seemed like every other day seemed. It seemed like an average, ordinary day. With the rising of the sun, the city began to stir like it would begin to stir every single morning. Families were waking up and beginning their day together. Women were on the way to the well to gather water for their family for the day. Uh, shops were beginning to open. Just outside the city, sheep were grazing and milling about on the hillsides. It was a day of very typical and very ordinary activities. And yet at the same time that all of those typical and ordinary activities were happening, there was something occurring which was not typical at all. In fact, it was very unusual. And that is that there was an assembly happening on that morning in which the Jewish Sanhedrin, the high court of Israel, would do something very unusual, and that is that they were going to have an early morning meeting in which they would condemn an innocent man to death. In fact, look at Mark chapter 15 and verse number 1. You'll see this gathering occurring. Verse number 1 says, And straightway in the morning, it means very early, or even as the sun is just coming up, very early in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and with the whole council. Now, this is following the arrest of Jesus, which had happened on the previous night. He's now been held overnight, and very early in the morning, the entire Jewish council is coming together to decide the fate of Jesus. And they hold their meeting early on that morning, and they determine that he is going to be executed. Now, when you read from Mark chapter 15 forward, and particularly when you read Mark 15 forward in light of what Matthew says about the same day and what Luke tells us and what John details for us, when you harmonize all of those gospels, you get the full picture of what took place that morning. The Bible tells us in Mark 15 and verse number 1 that having made the decision that Jesus would die, they then bound the hands of Jesus. 
They tied Jesus and began to lead him. Jesus who had never resisted, Jesus who did not flee the night before when they came to arrest him, Jesus who had offered no protest to them at all, they bound his hands tightly and they began to lead him through the streets from Mount Zion over toward Pilate's Hall. The Gospels tell us that when he arrived at Pilate's Hall, he was questioned, interrogated briefly by Pilate, who was the Roman authority, the Roman governor in that region. Pilate then sent Jesus from his courtroom over to King Herod's courtroom. Herod was the Jewish king, and Pilate sent him over to Herod. Now, Herod did nothing with Jesus except dismiss him and mock him. Herod had no time for Jesus, and he wasn't interested in who he was at all. So Herod sent him back. So Jesus is bound. He's taken to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod. Now from Herod back to Pilate. When he comes before Pilate again, there's a bit of back and forth. Finally, Pilate determines to release a criminal named Barabbas and in the place of Barabbas, in fact, uh, we would say on the cross of Barabbas, who is a representation of us all, Jesus was condemned to die on that cross. Now, it's important to note that when this determination finally is made by Pilate early that morning, that there is a transition in custody. Prior to this, Jesus has been in the custody of the Jewish temple guard. He's been taken by the Jewish people to Pilate. Now he's been sent to the Jewish king, Herod. King Herod sent him back to Pilate. Pilate makes his determination, and there's a, there's a change in the chain of custody. So he's taken from the custody of the Jewish temple guard, and now he is given, look at chapter 15, verse number 15. After he is released, or Barabbas is released, and Jesus is condemned, it says in verse 16 that the soldiers led Jesus away. Well, who are the soldiers? These are the Roman soldiers. So Jesus has now transitioned from the adjudication of his case, from the judicial side of what's been happening, now to the punishment phase or the execution phase of his sentence. And in so doing, he is placed into the custody of the soldiers, these Roman soldiers in verse number 16. The soldiers led him away. Now I need to tell you that these Roman soldiers were merciless men. They were pitiless soldiers. And when Jesus is delivered into their hands like a bunch of jackals surrounding wounded pray, they come around Jesus by the hundreds, literally. In fact, we know this because verse number 16 tells us that the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band of soldiers. Now, in the Roman military, a band of soldiers was a cohort and we know from historical documents that a Roman cohort is made up of about 600 men. So Jesus is surrounded by the whole band or the entire cohort 
of, of 600 men. A cohort is made up of, uh, of six centuria. And a Roman centuria is 100 Roman soldiers. It's the basic building block of the Roman military. 100 soldiers under the command of one centurion. And so six centurions were present that day with six of their centuria, which made up the Roman cohort or the whole band of soldiers. And of those six centurions, there's one who is the subject of our study this morning. I want you to look at verse number 39 in this text. And if you have a pen, would you circle these two words? We're going to meet him in verse 39. And when the centurion... The centurion, this one particular centurion. Now, we're going to think a lot about this centurion today, but the truth is we're not given a, a, an awful lot of information about him. Uh, but the fact that he was the centurion at least tells us some things that we can deduce or that we can know are true. Now, one thing to notice is that we don't know his name. We have no idea what his name is, but if you'll allow me, I'm going to name him. It just helps me when I'm reading something like this, just to name the people I'm talking about. So I want to introduce you to Maximus. That's what we're going to call him, okay? This is Maximus. Now, I don't know if his name was Maximus, but it's a good Roman name. It's a good Latin name, which means the greatest. And he was apparently the lead centurion of the six who were present that day because he was given a, a great responsibility and so let's call him Maximus. What we would know about Maximus is, as I've mentioned, he was the commander of a hundred steely-eyed, roughneck, brutal Roman soldiers. We also would know that Maximus was a hardened warrior himself. He was a career Soldier. Roman soldiers did not become centurions overnight. They received their command after years, a career of service to the emperor in the Roman uh, military. Maximus would have been disciplined. He would have been unyielding. He would have been an efficient soldier. Maximus had a job to do, and he was going to do his job. And you know what his job was on this particular day? He had been given responsibility with his centuria, his soldiers, for the execution of Jesus Christ. That was his job. Well, let's read it. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse number 16. You follow along as I read. The Bible says, And the soldiers led Jesus away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, the cohort of soldiers. And they clothed him with, purple, uh, with, uh, with a purple robe. And they plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They began to mockingly salute him and say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him and they began to strike him on the head with a reed. And they did spit upon him. And bowing their knees, they worshipped him mockingly. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him. They put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And they compelled a man named Simon, who was a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. 
they commanded Simon to bear the cross of Jesus. And they brought him unto the place called Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And they gave him wine to drink, mingled with myrrh, but he did not receive it. And when they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour of the day when they crucified him. And there was a superscription uh, written above him. On, this accusation was written over him, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand and the other on his left hand. So that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be crucified with, with thieves. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Oh, you that would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests, mocking, said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They that were crucified with him, they reviled him as well. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he is calling for Elijah. And so one ran and filled a sponge uh, full of water, full of vinegar, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Others said, let him alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He died. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, there he is, Maximus. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that, saw that he cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, this crucifixion narrative by Mark, and especially when considered with the narratives that are provided by Matthew and Luke and John as well, when you put all of those together, you are, you are able to discern more than perhaps you even want to know about the crucifixion, the suffering, and the crucifixion of Jesus. And while it might be difficult to hear these things, it is important for us to understand them and to never, ever forget them. And so, I want to walk through these things with you this morning for just a few minutes. As you consider the suffering of Christ on this morning of his crucifixion, you should know, first of all, that in this moment, Jesus was abused and mocked, perhaps in ways that no other person has ever experienced. Jesus was abused and mocked. We read earlier, chapter 15, verse 16, 17, where Jesus is taken from Pilate's hall, from the courtyard, into this common hall, which is called the praetorium, likely an outdoor 
a courtyard, a large area where he's surrounded and he suffers literally at the hand of hundreds of Roman soldiers. Now here's what we know. Cruelty comes in more than one way, doesn't it? There is a physical abuse which is cruel, but there is also a humiliation and a mockery that is cruel as well. This is the reason that I say that you should read not only the Gospel of Mark, but all of the Gospels. Because when you read Matthew and Luke specifically, you have a very clear emphasis on the physical abuse and suffering of Jesus. They give us some details that Mark and John don't give us. As an example, in Matthew 27, Jesus tells us that Jesus, or, or uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus was scourged by Pilate and his soldiers. Scourged. Now, we don't know a lot about scourging in our day, but to simply tell you what it meant, it is to say that Jesus was whipped with an implement of Roman torture, which was made up of a whip with uh, strands, often nine strands of leather straps. And embedded in each of those leather straps, there were bits of lead and iron and glass and stone. And this scourging was a common practice for people headed to crucifixion. It was intended to weaken the body, to punish them even before their death sentence is executed, but to weaken them so that their death on the cross would not linger too long. They would even approach the cross in a weakened state. And so many, many lashes were laid, Matthew tells us, on the back of Jesus by this scourging. Luke tells us that Jesus, during his time in the praetorium with these hundreds of soldiers, was blindfolded. I believe Luke is the only one that mentions this detail. He was blindfolded, and these soldiers mockingly said, if you're the king of the Jews, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Christ, you know all things. If you're a prophet, you can answer us. And they would punch him, and then they would say, tell us who hit you. Which of the soldiers just hit you? He was blindfolded. And he was beaten. Mark gives us some details about his physical suffering as well. But Mark is very intent to explain to us not just the physical suffering of Jesus, but the, the abuse of Jesus in terms of his mockery and his humiliation. Mark emphasizes how that they pretended that Jesus was a king. Remember, Jesus is brought before Pilate with the accusation. Pilate said to the Jewish council, why have you brought him here? What evil has he done? And their answer was, he has made himself a king. He has called himself the king of the Jews. And in so doing, he had committed treason against the Roman authorities. In fact, that was what ultimately convinced Pilate to have him crucified, is that the, the Sadducees and the religious leaders said to Pilate, if you allow him to commit such treason and don't crucify him, you will be committing treason or you will be no friend of Caesar's as well. So he was brought to them on the accusation that he claimed to be a king. And so the Roman soldiers said, well, if you're a king, then every king ought to be paid homage to. And so they put a royal colored uh, purple robe on him. The Bible says, verse 29 down through verse number uh, 
uh, uh, 32. They put this robe on him. I'm sorry, verse 17 actually. They cover him with a purple robe. Every king should have a crown. And so verse 17 tells us that they plaited together a crown of thorns. The, the word means to weave together. It's like basket making. They wove together a crown of thorns. Thorns that were that long or longer, hard as nails that would be pressed down upon his brow through the scalp and all the way to the skull. They took a stick, a, a reed, the text says. It was a, a, like a bamboo or a cane measuring stick, about six feet long. They put it in his hand like his mock scepter. Every king needs a scepter, but his his scepter was not golden, diamond encrusted. It was a simple measuring stick, like you might think of a yard stick. And then they sarcastically began to kneel down. Imagine this scene of Jesus the king, robed in purple, crowned with thorns, holding a silly stick. And they begin to bow before him and say, Hail, king of the Jews. And they mockingly paid homage to him. And while they were kneeling before him, they spit upon him, verse number 19 says. They pulled the reed from his hand and they hit him with the reed. Jesus was abused and he was mocked. Secondly, Mark lets us know that Jesus was accused and he was punished. Now, he was crucified and what many of you may not know, while you understand what crucifixion is, you may not know that crucifixion was a very common practice in the Roman Empire. It was not rare at all. In fact, it was Rome's strategy. It was their, their strategy for quelling any disobedience or uprisings among the populace. If you had lived in the Roman Empire, you would approach any city in the, in the Roman Empire and you would see crosses lining the roads leading up to those cities. Sometimes empty, very often with someone there dying, very often with the remains of some criminal that had already died and had been left there for the birds to pick at. That would be a common scene. Jesus was accused of treason. I mentioned that the Bible says in verse number 26 that they put this sign above him. He claimed to be the king of the Jews. Verse 27 tells us that he was crucified with known thieves. He must be guilty. He's surrounded by transgressors. Verse 24 tells us that when they crucified him, they stripped him of his clothes. And so Jesus is crucified naked, hanging upon the cross. And when you think of crucifixion, you know what happens. That Christ is crucified by being impaled to a cross, nailed with spikes into a wood cross. Through the hands, actually more likely through the wrist, because in the hands and the palms it would tear out by the weight of the body. But here, through the wrist, the cartilage, the, the bone, there's support in fact, very often in Orthodox churches, you will see renderings, paintings of Jesus with his hands like this. Have you ever seen that? You ever wondered why? It's a, it's a reminder that when the spikes went in, it drew his hand. It drew his fingers. We think of Jesus nailed to the cross, his arms here. We often think of one foot upon the other, nailed with one spike through the, 
through the cross. That could have been the way that it was done. Very often, though, crucifixions happened in the same way to take advantage of the bony wrist that the hands would hold. They would be nailed through the side of the ankle where the bones are much more substantial to hold the body to the cross. And sometimes they would be nailed with their feet drawn up and nailed into the side of the cross. Jesus was accused and he was punished like a criminal, though he was sinless. Thirdly, Jesus was alone and he was humiliated. I mentioned that he had been stripped naked, his clothes taken when they arrived at the cross, the soldiers gambling for them. And I want you to imagine for a minute how alone Jesus was in this moment. He was alone not because he was on a hill far away like the old hymn says. In fact, he wasn't on a hill far away at all. He was on a cross next to a road right beside the city gate. He was near the city where passers-by were coming and going. And he wasn't suspended on a cross six, eight, ten feet off the ground. No, he was suspended a foot or so above the ground. If I were being crucified, you would walk by on the floor. I would be no higher than this. And so those walking by could see into his eyes and could hurl accusations at him. I'm convinced that there has never been a person in all of human history more alone than Jesus was alone in this moment. Suspended a foot or so off the ground, naked, deserted by his disciples, rejected by the Jewish nation he came to save crucified and condemned by the Romans, he was completely alone. And even among those who passed by and observed his being crucified, there was not a compassionate word spoken. There was no person who said any kind word to him. In fact, verse 29 tells us that those that passed by hurled accusations at him. They railed on him. They said, oh, you said you could destroy the temple in three days and build it again. Why don't you come down off the cross and prove who you are? The Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests mocked him with their words. And even the two thieves, one on each side, in the beginning, both of them hurled accusations at him. Jesus was more alone than any person has ever been and humiliated. And then lastly, Jesus was abandoned And he was lost. I don't mean to say that he was lost in the sense that somehow he lost his divinity. But I mean to say that he was lost in the sense that in this moment, he was utterly lost in the judgment of Almighty God. It had been early that morning, around 6 or 6.30, just as the sun began to rise, that he had been taken to Pilate, with the back and forth from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate and and the consideration of Jesus versus Barabbas and the interrogation of Pilate, all of that took a while. Then he was released to the soldiers. Their abuse in the praetorium took a while. It's about three hours before Jesus arrives at Golgotha. And the Bible says that he arrives at Golgotha and he is crucified at the the, uh, third hour or at nine in the morning. Scripture tells us that he's on the cross for six hours. 
that three hours into the crucifixion, so at nine he's crucified, at noon, when the sun is the highest in the sky and its rays illuminating all of the, of the earth, that at noon God reached up and pulled the chain on the sun and it went dark. And that around all that entire land, the Bible says that it was covered in darkness. Look at it, verse number 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land for three hours until the ninth hour. What a scene this must have been. Jesus hanging naked on the cross, more alone than anyone has ever been, reviled by every person who passes by, every person involved in his crucifixion, every crucified criminal on either side of him. He is completely alone, and now suddenly the the, the earth goes dark, and Matthew tells us that the earth began to quake, that there was an earthquake that shook the ground and that even rocks began to fall. And to break. Until finally, in all of that chaos and all of that confusion, in verse number 34, at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried with a loud voice and said, Eloi, Eloi, my God, my God, Lama Sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, listen carefully, all of your sin and mine and all of the sin of the entire world had been laid upon Jesus. In fact, Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone everyone to our own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Know this, that he became our sin and even God turned his back on his son. And in that moment of abuse and accusation and aloneness and abandonment and darkness and chaos, Jesus hangs. Suspended between an earth that is convulsing and a heaven that is closed. And so he says, verse 37, Jesus in that moment cried with a loud voice. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what he said, but Matthew tells us something that he said there, and John tells us something that he said there as well. He cried with a loud voice, and here's what he said. Matthew tells us that he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. John tells us that he completed the sentence by saying, it is finished. And in that moment, Mark says he gave up the ghost. He died. And standing, observing the entire event is Maximus, our centurion who saw the whole thing. I want you to write down two things about Maximus and we're going to be done. First of all, think about his perspective. 
What was the perspective that Maximus had of this event? Well, look at verse number 39. Verse number 39 says, And when the centurion which stood over against him. Let me tell you what that means. Listen carefully. It means when the centurion who stood face to face with Jesus. It means opposite Jesus, but facing him. Why was he there? Because he is the greatest centurion on that day. He's been given the greatest responsibility. His centuria is responsible for the execution. And he stands in front of the cross, barking out commands, carrying out the execution. He had been there the whole day. He had seen the abuse. He had seen the mockery. He had seen and perhaps participated in the scourging. He had seen Christ suffer before they reached the cross. It was Maximus who said, put him on the cross. It was Maximus who said, drive the nails, drive the nails. Okay, get the feet. Is he, is he secure? Have you got him nailed? All right, raise him up. It was Maximus who said, put the cross member in place. Raise him up. It was Maximus who demanded, who commanded his soldiers to impale Christ on the cross. He saw it all. It was Maximus who when he gave the command to drive the nails, he heard as the other gospel writers tell us, he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maximus heard Jesus speak compassionately to the, to the thief who repented. He stands in front of this naked Savior dying a humiliating and brutal death on the cross. And suddenly he feels the earth begin to shake. He sees the cross rattling around. He feels the earthquake. He sees the rocks falling. He feels the thick darkness. Maximus had a front row seat as Jesus <gasps> drew his last breath. Oh, how I wish you and I could gain the perspective of Maximus. Oh, how I wish that the cross for us was not about a gold chain around our neck or about a symbol in a church, but how I wish we could gain the perspective of the suffering and the sacrifice and the surrender of this Savior for us. I believe if we could see through Maximus's eyes, we would love him more. and We would serve him more fully and we would surrender to him more completely. Maximus had this perspective. Lastly, let's think about his persuasion. What did Maximus think about what had taken place that day? Now, by the way, I said that we don't know a whole lot about the centurion. But here's what I think is probably true. I bet Maximus had ice water running in his veins. I mean, this was a hardened Roman commander. He had seen battles and conflicts and conquests. He had taken slaves. He had executed entire villages. I mean, Maximus could drain a man's lifeblood before lunch and sleep well at night. 
He was a hard-hearted, calloused man. But this, this, this left him speechless. And as he stood in that place, rocking with the earthquake, seeing the rocks fall, feeling the darkness, seeing the silhouette in the darkness of this Savior now limp and lifeless hanging on the cross, he uttered one sentence, a one-sentence sermon, and he got it right. He spoke it more clearly than any seminarian has ever spoken it. He preached it more profoundly than the preachers of all the ages have ever preached it standing in front of the lifeless corpse of Christ. He said, truly, it means there's no doubt, absolutely, this man was the son of God. It's a sermon. Maximus understood it. And Maximus proclaimed it, the deity of Jesus Christ. And Maximus wants to be your evangelist. He wants you to get it like he got it. That you would understand that this suffering Savior who, without having ever sinned, and who at any moment could have called legions of angels and ended his suffering in an instant, That this suffering Savior who was abused and who was accused and who suffered alone and who was abandoned, that all of that suffering and that death was so that his death on the cross might provide our atonement, our covering, our forgiveness. In fact, look at the next verse, verse number 37. Jesus cried with a loud voice, And gave up the ghost. And in the moment when Jesus died, look at verse 38. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, for those of you who understand the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, you know that the veil was a heavy curtain that no person, do you understand? No person on the planet could simply go into any time they wanted. Only the high priest could go in, and he could only go in one time a year, and he could only go in if he had the right sacrifice, and he could only go in if he was perfectly purified. This was the barrier. This veil was the curtain, the barrier, the door that prevented our access to God. But in the moment that Christ atoned for our sins when he died, the veil was torn apart from top to bottom. God's way of showing you the door to heaven has been opened. Amen. That we can come, Jews and Gentiles, Maximus and preachers, every person, boy or girl, black or white, it makes no difference. Christ opened the door to heaven with his death. In fact, the New Testament goes on to tell us that His body is the veil. His body was torn like the veil was torn. And he, his body, is the door into heaven. And so Christ suffered alone and he suffered humiliation and he he suffered abandonment and he died. And Maximus stood there amazed in the presence of one that would do that for him. I don't know if when we get to heaven, Maximus is going to be there. I I can't say for sure that he was converted on this day. We can say that he understood 
who Jesus was. I hope he's in heaven. But I know what he knew in that moment. And that is that he was amazed that this Savior would do that even for him. Now, I know it might be elementary, and you're not children. But sometimes we need to become like children, don't we? Jesus said to become like a child into the kingdom of heaven. It might be more appropriate in a child's Sunday school class to ask you to say this, but I want to ask you to say it. I want you to recognize that this crucifixion that we've learned about today, it was for you. And I want you to acknowledge it. I want you to say, he did that for me. He did that for me. If you believe that, would you just say it out loud with me? Let's say it. He did that for me. Everything we've talked about, his aloneness, his abuse, his accusation, his humiliation, his abandonment, his suffering, his death. Say it again. He did that for me. And isn't that amazing?